have some claims, just stay quiet and you'll be okay. We are turning to the airport. That we can't breathe? I don't know. I think we're getting hijacked. All of this was brought upon us in a single day, and night fell on a different world, a world where freedom itself is under attack. We cannot let this evil continue. We must define the nature and scope of this struggle, or else it will define us. Thanks for listening to the fourth episode of this special series of WarPod, Reckoning with 9-11, with support from Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. Looking back 20 years on at the impacts of 9-11 across the world, we will look at the conflicts that emerged in response, the legal and security reforms that changed people's lives and societies, the impacts on our culture and our politics. We will hear from people who have experienced the ripple effects, as well as experts who documented and analyzed them. Episode 3 looked at overreach in Iraq and its consequences. This fourth episode looks at two countries that became key battlegrounds in the global war on terror, Somalia and Yemen. Welcome back to Reckoning with 9-11. I am Delina Gojo. And I'm Larry Atri. When 9-11 happened, Yemen's ruler, Ali Abdullah Saleh, had a decision to make. Although there'd been some violence and divisions under his tenure, Saleh had been in power for 23 years. He famously saw the task of governing Yemen as dancing on the heads of snakes, staving off the power of rivals, putting relatives and allies into key posts, keeping everyone in check, and never letting anyone rear up and pose a threat. Saleh had opposed the first Gulf War, and this annoyed Saudi Arabia, who threw out 800,000 Yemenis, mostly migrant workers. So when Bush told the world, you are either with us or against us, Saleh knew he'd been put on notice. Yes, because one of al-Qaeda's most provocative acts before 9-11 had been to bomb the USS Cole in the port of Aden in the south of Yemen. And this time, Saleh decided to align with America and the coming fight against al-Qaeda in his country. And Yemen became, at least overtly, a US ally in the war on terror. Fast forward to today, Yemen has been at war since 2014 and facing one of the world's worst humanitarian emergencies. And how it got to this point is deeply connected to 9-11 and what came in its wake. Reckoning with 9-11 Joining us to explore what happened are Iona Craig, an investigative journalist focused on Yemen and the neighbourhood and a past winner of the Orwell Prize for Journalism, and Yemeni peace builder and Safer World's country director for Yemen, Alfa Al-Nami. Yes, so um, Alfa, can you start us off by telling us a little bit about what life was like in Yemen under Saleh's rule in those early years of the new millennium? It was a period of change. It was a period of a lot of anger, a lot of contempt to the authorities, to other nations. The feeling inside Yemen was a lot of uncertainty, especially after the unification war in 1994 when it paved the way to more grievance in the south and also uh, the rebellion in the north with Ansar Allah or Houthis movement. And there is also the Afghan war with a lot of fighters coming back to Yemen. Also, because of that, we see a lot of the fundamental ideas were spreading and the radical views in Yemen were spreading a lot, especially in the east of the country, maybe, after many years of depriving those regions from practicing their religion or their thoughts. 
and Yemen had quite a lot of poverty at this time and services were receding, oil wealth was set to decline, justice institutions weren't working that well, but elites from a few families in Yemen were doing very well. So how would you say ordinary people in Yemen viewed the government and the ruling elites at this time? There was a say, if you're not getting rich in this period, you'll never get rich. <laughs> the, the level of corruption was really bad. As you said, only a few had the access to the resources and they were manipulating everything, all the scene, the political, the economic scene, and even sometimes the religious scene as well. Even with that, there was a hope in the politician or the political process Many parties were trying to to voice up all the objections, all the uh, opposition to what was going on. And frankly, we had we had faith that this might be okay. But no, <laughs> at the end, it was much more to be handled by only faith or hope. So this gives us a great sense of the overall context. Thank you, Alpha. Yona, when it comes to Al-Qaeda, what was the actual threat um, the organization posed in Yemen in the years after 9-11? Well, I think we probably have to go back a little bit to kind of explain maybe where Al-Qaeda came from in in Yemen. And in, in that respect, it, it was born out of Yemenis and men who went to fight in Afghanistan with the Mujahideen and the Yemeni government paid for their flights and gave them money to go and fight against the Soviets in Afghanistan. When that battle was essentially over, they returned. Ali Abdullah Saleh then really co-opted them to to fight against the socialists in the south or what were referred to as the godless communists. And then a lot of them were sort of brought into the fold, if you like, and were given jobs within the government. But the more militant of the Afghan veterans who couldn't be brought into the fold, there was then the formation of what was called the Islamic Jihad movement. And they were really the first militant uh, formal Islamist group in Yemen with ties and sort of personal connections to Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. The first attack against the US in, in Yemen was in December 1992, so some time before 9-11, when Jamal al-Nahdi attempted to kill US Marines at a hotel in Aden. Now, Jamal al-Nahdi was then given a job in the Ministry of Interior, and it begins to explain the relationship, really, that goes on for many years between the government and, and al-Qaeda. When we jump forward to 9-11, a year prior to that, a bomb-laden skiff was sailed into, if you like, the side of the USS Cole that was docked off the coast of, of Aden port and killed 17 US Marines. I think the USS Cole was a real moment for America and the realization that it had a problem with Al-Qaeda in Yemen at that point. Can you tell us more about the US reaction to the USS Cole, but also what happened after that? What happened after that was there was a sort of knee-jerk reaction from the Saleh government. So several hundred of the jihadists were rounded up and all accused of being involved in the USS Cole. But it's slightly ridiculous to think that there were 200 people involved in, in that attack. It was then a, a, a really a question of the US throwing money at the problem. And that resulted in a $400 million aid budget, mostly military, being signed with Yemen in, in November 2001, after the September 11th attacks. 
There was a building of bases up in the north outside Sana'a to do training of counter-terrorism troops that helped with the formation of the National Security Bureau, Yemen's biggest or most secretive security and intelligence agency. This was military support in the form of arms, training, the intelligence side as well, the communications and capabilities to monitor its own population, of course. It was about increasing military aid and funding and essentially training troops in Yemen in counterterrorism in both Sana'a and, and across the south where a lot of the al-Qaeda activity was going on. Yeah, so let's go deeper into this. The assistance being provided wasn't necessarily being used for the purpose that the US intended. And I think people were aware, you know, they weren't completely unaware of the, the risks and concerns of how this assistance might play out in, in Yemen, right? Yes, I think that was quite clear. I think during the uprising and the political protest, you saw the counterterrorism troops being deployed on the streets of Sana'a against Saleh's political opponents, all the while, whilst al-Qaeda was taking control of territory in the south, particularly in Zinjibar, when the local security forces effectively stood down and the counterterrorism troops were nowhere to be seen. But I think there was other ways that it was more subtle. I mean, we look at the drone strike in May 2010 of Jabba Shabwani, who was the deputy governor of Marib, who was killed erroneously, as it later turned out, in a US drone strike. It would appear later on that the US was potentially deliberately fed misintelligence in order for that drone strike to be carried out. So that Saleh was even able to use the US drone program to his own ends, never mind the counterterrorism troops on the ground that were often deployed against local tribes in local grievances and later on to, to crush his political opponents during 2011. And so for Yemenis, really, they see al-Qaeda as this tool that is used by political forces for their own ends. And they certainly see the use of, of sort of military units that have been trained and funded by the US as another, that they were certainly another tool for, you know, weaponry for the government to use often against them and certainly against Saleh's political opponents. Maybe, Iona, just a final word from you, because obviously there's a lot of innuendo surrounding Saleh's relationship with al-Qaeda. How certain can we be on this question of whether they were for him useful enemies? I think so. There was very little al-Qaeda activity um, in Yemen between 2004 and 2006. This was largely a reaction from the US post 9-11 with the funding and the support that they had given to Saleh and to the Yemeni security forces. Then suddenly, Yemen lost $300 million in aid from both the US and the World Bank. And within months of that happening, there was a prison break in February 2006 in Sana'a. And 23 of those prisoners who broke out were al-Qaeda members and a group of them would later go on to form al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. But you saw funding for Yemen from the State Department go from 4.3 million for financial year 2006 before that prison break happened 
Then after the US cargo bomb plots that happened at the end of 2009, it went to more than 155 million in 2010. So you see this correlation between when money is given to Yemen and attacks. And I think it would be naive to assume that those attacks were happening without some knowledge if not support from the Saleh government. I mean, there's been a lot of you know reporting as well of meetings between Saleh's son, Ahmed Ali, and Qasem al-Raimi, who would then go on to um, actually be the leader of AQAP. AQAP meaning Al-Qaeda in the Arabic Peninsula, which is based in Yemen. Again, there was even Saudi intelligence reported seeing Jamal al-Nahdi and other members of some of the early Islamist groups in Yemen being with one of Yemen's intelligence organizations after attacks had happened. I think definitely there was known to be a sort of tacit relationship with AQAP. When you go back to the money side of things, certainly, if anything, the US was in effect, even if it didn't mean to, rewarding Saleh when there were serious threats from al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. So as the West sees a greater threat, I mean, it wasn't only the US, but I mean, other governments were sort of coming together to pledge stabilisation support to Yemen. And all this is going on in the context which Alpha's described of the neglect of much of the country, popular discontent, uh, rebellions, including by Ansar Allah, but, you know, other problems. And I want to pose a question to you, uh, Alpha, about how much do you see this kind of support that Saleh was getting to counter terror, which, as we've heard, he wasn't always using to actually fight al-Qaeda, but to push against other opponents. How do you see that link to what came next in terms of the events of 2011 and everything after? First, if I may say, not all Yemenis think that it's... um... Saleh, who was controlling uh, Qaeda or those Islamics, actually the many views of what is Qaeda and who is controlling them. But uh, certainly he wasn't the one who created them. The support to the Mujahideen was coming from USA, was coming from KSA. KSA meaning the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Some of the leaders, I think, and Ali Abdullah Saleh included, had to use the tools that they they were provided, given to them by those internationals. Going back to your question, I think this stabilization that was there, the production of war leaders, of people who are benefiting from the war and terrorism, all that led to the situation that we are in right now, all were connected. Can you expand on this just a little bit, the question of whether counterterrorism and stabilization support to Yemen fed into those divisions and the discontent in Yemen that sort of rose up in Yemen's Arab Spring moment? Was it connected to 2011? What happened in 2011? And, and what was then the consequence of that for stability in the country? I think the, the main problem with uh, that approach that it diverted the efforts. So instead of really fighting the cause of those attacks, instead of repairing what's happening inside the country, the reasons were dealt with violence, with brutal violence that led to more of uh, the feeling of injustice or the feeling of 
we need to fix this. <laughs> and the fundamentalism was spreading because of that. So I would say the main harm was done because it diverted the, the efforts to really fight what was causing all of this. And we see that uh, in 2011 when it was all about taking out the regime. It was all about people, Ali Abdullah Saleh or this guy or that guy, not really seeing how can we fix this by mobilizing the institutions that we have, the democracy that we were building. I would say it really made a big head to the democracy process in Yemen because it created all these monsters. Yes, yeah, so with all of this sort of discontent rising up, people came onto the street in 2011, there's a lot of unrest, everyone starts fighting for their corner and stability breaks down at that point and never really recovers, is that right? Yeah, and instead of thinking of solutions, it was pointing fingers to each other. And as you said, everyone was hiding behind what they thought was right. And because the, the scene was blurred by the attacks and by the the actions against the attacks, all that was creating a lot of anger, a lot of discontent. And that was manifested in 2011. Yeah, so I think there is a big link between them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Ayona, the war on terror is still going on in Yemen. Can you tell us a bit more about how this played out after the crisis in 2011? I think what you saw in 2011 was for the first time al-Qaeda in Yemen taking territory. And, you know, that was in, that was in southern Yemen, mainly in Abiyan. I visited those areas um, after al-Qaeda had taken control of them. And I think some of the things the local communities took benefit from whilst al-Qaeda had control was things like having a justice system suddenly that functioned. Land disputes that had been going on for years were resolved whilst al-Qaeda was in control. They had had a problem with the electricity and I mean, al-Qaeda rewired and tapped into the, to the state, of course, but basically uh, solved uh, you know, long power outages and cuts that were going on. After they were pushed out of Zinjibar, And out of Abiyan, they really sort of went into, if you like, regrouping mode. They lost a lot of fighters. They'd lost their territory. But with then, we saw a resurgence again when the most recent conflict came round. And it was the second time then that they took territory in, in 2015. The US funding had increased again once Hadi came into power. That's President Abdrabu Mansur Hadi, who came to power after Saleh's ouster in 2011. Their greatest fear in 2011 really was not having a plan B after Saleh and their main concern being about counterterrorism. Uh, and Saleh played on that. He you know, claimed that without him there would be chaos, that al-Qaeda would take over. But um, certainly had he received full support then from the US in counterterrorism, we saw a continuation of the drone program under the Obama administration. But we then saw really a, a kind of resurgence of al-Qaeda's capabilities in 2015 when they took control of Mokalla. Now, certainly in Mokalla, some of the local tribes tried to fight al-Qaeda and, and stop them from taking over the city. And, you know, they told me when I met them that they were prevented from doing so by government troops who stood in their way and stopped them from fighting al-Qaeda out, out from the city. And al-Qaeda took control of Mokalla. They definitely made more money in that time through the oil smuggling business and they had done in their entire existence. But whilst the state was focused on fighting, obviously, the Houthis and there was 
a lot of distraction for the US, certainly of what was happening with Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. Al-Qaeda in Yemen was able to take advantage of that. In Abiyan, when they'd taken control back in 2011 and 2012, they'd been quite strict with the local population. They'd forced rules upon them in Mokala. They were more relaxed about some of those rules. Their rules about not being allowed to chew gap, for example. Women were still going out at night when I went there and uh, things like that. They didn't want to impose themselves so strongly on the local community because they were trying to build support. They really wanted to try and expand their territorial gains, but they had to persuade people. And so we saw the establishment in 2011 and uh, and 2012 of uh, a rebranding, really, when we first heard about the the term Ansar al-Sharia, which was effectively an offshoot of al-Qaeda, to sort of distance themselves really from what is a bad image of Al-Qaeda in order to integrate themselves within the community. By 2015, they tried again with similar tactics in in Hadramount and Mokala by creating another group called the Sons of Hadramount. Al-Qaeda had learned that it needed to infiltrate the community by persuasion and not by force. In Mokala, they were rebuilding roads that had been washed away in the floods. They were trying to promote themselves as providing healthcare and social services and did a lot of propaganda on this front to make themselves more appealing to the local population. The state had not provided basic services on a regular basis of electricity and decent healthcare and issues with water. Certainly, you know, the judiciary in Yemen had failed a lot of people. And so it wasn't necessarily hard to outdo the state when you're doing it at a very local level. So in terms of the group resilience and longevity, you have this tactic of, you know, that they adopted in terms of governing reasonably, offering some things that the state didn't. But what's going on on the other side of the war on terror in this sort of more recent decade? Yeah, I think probably the most significant events was what became known as the Christmas Day bomb plot or the underwear bomb plot, where a Nigerian national who'd been trained by Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen got on a plane with you know, explosives in his underwear and attempted to blow up a US-bound flight. That was in 2009. And then in 2010 was probably the closest Al-Qaeda came to carrying out an attack on the same sort of level as as 9-11 was when two cargo bombs, they were in printed cartridges, were put on aeroplanes and sent to synagogues in the US. And they were caught or found en route. And that was when AQAP became sort of known in Washington as the most dangerous franchise of Al-Qaeda in the world. Again, that meant America pumping more money into Yemen, an increase in drone strikes and attacks in Yemen. Uh, And also collaboration with Saudi Arabia, as you mentioned, that cargo bomb plot was allegedly mainly foiled because of help from Saudi Arabia. And that really led to a sort of a long campaign of which had already been ongoing of hunting down Anwar Awlaki, who they believe was responsible for that cargo bomb plot. And he was an American citizen. 
And he was later then killed in a, in a drone strike in 2011. But he was, uh, as an English speaker and very popular on then on, on growing social media or certainly YouTube at that time, was able to inspire people internationally. And this is where AQOP is playing these two roles. One is about having a focus on the far enemy, on international attacks, and then one which is a very domestic one, which is about either taking territory or trying to um, infiltrate the local population and immerse themselves in Yemeni culture, really, and tribal society. In a way, um, you have some successes in the, the war on terror in Yemen, just in terms of just about managing to disrupt these ongoing attempts to attack the West. But then we've also sort of heard a picture of counterproductive effects in terms of offering the kind of support that didn't help Yemen to overcome governance problems and maybe worsen state-society relations that ties into some of the instability that the country's still wrestling with today. Do you see there as being a better way to support Yemen to get out of instability? And would that involve a change in the counter-terror thinking? that has been so dominant for the last 20 years? I think the uh, KSA has opened Pandora books in Yemen with the way they handled the crisis in Yemen or the way they handled the terrorism in Yemen. What kind of things that Yemen needs now, maybe not totally leaving the Yemenis alone now in the mess that was originally created by the help of uh, the internationals uh, as well as Yemenis, but determining the right interference, what kind of uh, support the Yemenis will need right now. And most of the support that we need is in thinking of the ways to fight this kind of problems that we're seeing. Thanks, Alpha. What about you, Iona? Yes, I think there has to be a better way because there can't be a worse way in some respects. Over the years, the US focus has just been on counterterrorism at the detriment to everything else. And that has really meant empowering a very centralized government, a corrupt system, and propping up authoritarian rule and a dictatorship in the form of Yemen's current war as well. We see the focus on a solution being centralized again, a deal between the Yemeni government and the Houthis, when really I think for anybody who spent a small amount of time focused on Yemen can see that that's not going to solve either the conflict most immediately, but the long-term problems that led to the war when it started really in 2014. There's governing issues over federalism that need to be addressed. And I think that has to be part of the early stages of any kind of peace or political process, because that's one of the real underlying issues is over, you know, the structures of governance in Yemen. And that goes back to this whole idea of the, the US consistently propping up a centralized government and authoritarian rule because it, it suits their own ends. And I, I, I think in that respect, there should be a lot more focus on much more localized efforts, both in the counterterrorism. A lot of the time, it's tribal leaders and local communities that are trying to isolate Al Qaeda or trying to prevent them from infiltrating their local communities. They're doing that without any support whatsoever. That's a non armed struggle that really needs to be supported if you're able to build at a local level on local resolutions and local ceasefires. 
it's about the nuances of all of this rather than simplifying everything that we're so quick to do that's where you're going to get more success and more stability is from working within local communities and in local groups in a non-armed struggle. Thank you both very much indeed for explaining so clearly this complicated story of, of how the war on terror touched on Yemen and is still touching it today. Reckoning with 9-11 The story of Yemen is again really sobering. So what do we take away from this? Well, firstly, by making the terror threat the biggest focus of their strategy, Western governments failed to take Yemen on its own terms. Mm. They didn't realise that the way ruling elites were treating people and the risk of public anger spilling into chaos was a much bigger threat in the end. One thing that also really fed into public anger at both the government and its backers were all the drone and missile strikes killing civilians. And we didn't cover this in detail, but we know that operations to oust al-Qaeda in parts of Yemen like Abyan were often brutal and inflicted a lot of suffering on civilians. So overall, this counter-terror help Yemen got supported the wrong people to do the wrong things. The weapons they supplied ended up in the wrong hands. And like, for example, in Iraq, uh, much like what we saw in our previous episode, when stability broke down, Al-Qaeda and then the Islamic State got much more freedom to operate. So it was overall, a fairly self-defeating strategy. Now, across the Gulf of Aden from Yemen lies Somalia, another key war on terror battleground and a place which has found itself caught up in a seemingly endless war, with the Al-Qaeda affiliate Al-Shabaab remaining undefeated. As we will hear in our next interview, many of the issues we have seen in Yemen were also important in Somalia. So joining us to discuss the consequences of 9-11 in Somalia are Mary Harper, BBC Africa editor and author of a major book on Al-Shabaab titled Everything You Have Told Me Is True, as well as Dr. Afiare Elmi, who is the executive director of the Heritage Institute for Policy Studies in Mogadishu and author of Understanding the Somalia Conflagration. So Afiare, around the time of 9-11, can you describe for us the situation in Somalia? Actually, at the time, we had a newly formed transitional national government in Djibouti uh, that has not settled in the country yet. It was in a part of Mogadishu. Also, at the time, there were a number of faction leaders that controlled different parts of the country. Somaliland has already seceded, and the administration in Somaliland was doing well, I could say. And then uh, Buntulan was just formed uh, as well. Basically, there was no overarching authority in Somalia at the time. The negotiations of the state formation were at the embryonic stage. Mm-hmm. And what about the U.S. role in this space? So at the time, the U.S. wasn't particularly engaged after it had withdrawn during the 1990s Black Hawk Down episode, which we had mentioned in episode one. But what were relations at the time? After the Black Hawk Down, they left the country. At that time, the U.S. presence was minimal. What happened then after 9-11, Afiare? How did this change? Well, right before 9-11, there was an attack in Kenya and Tanzania uh, uh, in the embassies here. And at that time, Americans, for some reason, uh, 
uh, figured it out that people who were involved with just fled to Somalia. Right after 9-11, the entire profile of the Somalia are actually became the center. Somalia and Afghanistan were the, the, the top places uh, where the United States were thinking of, uh, and Sudan as well. So then the, the Al-Qaeda, the use of, I mean, a counterterrorism strategy in the Horn of Africa, uh, Somalia became at the center of it. So in this period, the US has some concerns about some known operatives linked to major attacks on Somali soil, and it's working to deal with them but then from, say, 2006, 2007, War on Terror really becomes a bigger part of Somalia's story. Can you tell us a bit more about that period and, and what happened? Prior to 2006, actually, the first casualty of the War on Terror uh, was the Somalia's transitional national government. Uh, because at the time, the U.S. just started to ignore and, and engage whoever was willing partner on the side of Somalia as a whole, uh, whether that person is a faction leader or someone close to them. And I think that was a bad strategy or at least a poorly advised uh, move from the U.S. just to directly ignore the government and then deal with the warlords or faction leaders. I think that has fastened the process of that government to fail. And uh, irony here is that right after the powerful force emerged uh, at the UIC or the Cortes, uh, then the U.S. had no choice but to use the, the government that it ignored earlier and Ethiopian invasion. So this is the emergence of the Union of Islamic Courts that came into power in Somalia. Can you just tell us that story a little bit and what happened as a consequence? Well, the Union of Islamic Courts uh, emerged. I mean, if you really want to understand the Islamic Courts, you have to go beyond the Islamists and al-Shabaab and all of these things. Islamic Courts began as early as 1990s when Somalis were fleeing. In 1991, some of the religious leaders brought together young men to protect fleeing civilians. That court was called Horset. That didn't work well. Soon, the faction leader, General Aidid, actually crushed them. And uh, right after that, again, the courts emerged in northern Mogadishu. Again, Ali Mahdi uh, Muhammad crushed them. And then they re-emerged in Gedu and other parts uh, of the southern Somalia. Again, the Ethiopians came and, and, and crushed them. Another time, Islamic courts re-emerged in late 1990s in Mogadishu, the southern part, all the way to Merka, another part, and even Hiran and Baidawa. So, I mean, this was a, 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 a movement that was aimed at securing the neighborhoods. It didn't have any political agenda, and it was supported by the local merchants early on. So if you, if, you, if you put it that way, that was actually an indigenous movement that was trying to uh, fill the vacuum that the state left. However, Al-Shabaab uh, at the time was non-existent entity, or even if they existed, nobody knew about it. Nobody knew them as Al-Qaeda. They were very small. 
the American approach of the counterterrorism engaged warlords who tried to hunt or attack these Al-Shabaab members or even anybody they, they didn't like. And then they started overreaching and, and, and targeting and taking some legitimate ulama to the American base in Djibouti. And that actually initially uh, created or triggered the popular reaction against the nine faction leaders that the U.S. was engaging at the time. So the overwhelming majority of the Islamic courts had nothing to do with the political agenda as a whole. They were basically neighborhood security force of some sort. However, once they just got rid of the warlords, the whole landscape changed. And also Al-Shabaab, who were part of that coalition, actually one of many, uh, also became much stronger. So at that time, there is an anti-warlordism. Kick the warlords out, open the port, open the airport, start, I mean, opening the neighborhoods. And all of a sudden, the American, the Ethiopian, the region in general, was worried that maybe Al-Shabaab might take over the whole country. So in 2006, we have UICs at least controlling most of southern Somalia, and now willing even to uh, take over the seal of the state. So here you have a bunch of warlords who were benefiting and actually exploiting the counter-terrorism strategy, poorly approached and, and actually mismanaged the whole thing, and therefore ignited this popular movement. What was interesting here is that by 2006, the United States uh, counter-terrorism went back to the government it ignored in 2004, and then tried to use that government to invite the Ethiopian and Kenyan and others uh, to, uh, to control Al-Shabaab. And even that was more like self-serving approach. It, it, it wasn't really a genuine assistant. And that resulted all the way back to American-supported invasion of the uh, Ethiopians. So I would turn now to Mari, thank you, Afiare, and ask perhaps how all of this fed into the emergence of Al-Shabaab. So Afiare presented some of this, but maybe you have more to add. Around that time when the courts were dominating and they were creating some kind of authority and predictability for people, once they were kind of identified as enemy and part of this whole so-called Al-Qaeda terrorist network, and the Americans backed this very brutal Ethiopian invasion that smashed the Union of Islamic Courts out of existence, even though they had been governing Somalia in a more effective way than warlords and other people had been doing since the early 1990s. Then they were destroyed, but Al-Shabaab, the more battle-hardened, militaristic people uh, associated with that group they kind of disappeared, but they didn't leave Somalia. These people, they stayed behind and then they re-emerged as a much more violent force than the body that actually kind of gave birth to them. Al-Shabaab describes itself as a kind of parallel government or a shadow government. At that time, it hadn't started to kind of control society and land and the geography of Somalia in the way it does today. 
But during that time, you know, you had in Mogadishu the so-called transitional governments very much propped up and funded by the United Nations, the US and others. Many people saw them really as some kind of puppet of the, the Western international community. When you look at the Ethiopian invasion at the end of 2006, it was very, very intense. It was very brutal. And what it did, Dr. Afiara has already kind of mentioned this, but that did lead actually to a kind of stronger nationalist popular support for groups like Al-Shabaab. Ethiopia has for, for decades been kind of Somalia's enemy number one. The two countries have fought wars before. So of all countries to come and invade, Ethiopia was would be the one that would give rise to the most animosity amongst the Somali populations. What happened then with the military involvement of countries like Kenya, Ethiopia, but also the presence of AMISOM? AMISOM, which is the African Union Intervention Force, that was um, made up of, of, of troops from places, countries like Uganda, Burundi. Initially, that was almost, I mean, Somali certainly saw them as something of a joke because they weren't at all familiar with the Somali terrain, the Somali way of conducting warfare and so on. So initially, and also they, they were like the Ethiopians involved in quite a lot of abuse of civilians. So they were not well received at the beginning, but now as the years have progressed and, and Amisom has been there for such a long time, they have at least in some places, being able to provide a little bit more security. Maybe Somalis also used to having them around, but there doesn't seem to be so much kind of open hostility to them, even though they, they do still occasionally, you know, carry out attacks where civilians are killed or injured or otherwise abuse civilians. So they're still not very popular, but they've kind of learned how to operate in Somalia better than they did at the beginning. It is complicated because initially the, the agreement in terms of Amazon was it wouldn't consist of troops from Somalia's neighbours because it, they have their own interests to protect. The sort of Ethiopian military presence is nothing new in Somalia. Um, and then when, when you think about Kenya and the way that Kenya uh, sent forces in, into Somalia after Amisom was formed. Uh, Kenya is also uh, playing its own politics in Somalia. Their military engagement inside Somalia is actually quite counterproductive for building some kind of national unity in Somalia itself because they're too politically involved and they're playing their own games that might well be to the detriment of uh, Somalia's future. Yes, yeah, so here we're beginning to touch on the story of how you know these powerful external players like the US government of course and then Ethiopia and Kenya were trying to wage a war to push back on al-Shabaab to liberate territory that it was controlling and it was in control of quite a large section of the country at its peak in maybe 2011 but then, you know, also empower the the government building its writ beyond Mogadishu um, and support stabilisation and state building within Somalia. But of course, however powerful those governments are, this is a war that's still going on and, you know, hasn't been a complete success from the 
external actor's point of view. So why not? Um, what have been some of the challenges in terms of liberating, stabilizing, building the states within Somalia? And um, what is the situation uh, these days in this ongoing war? I mean, there's there's so many different layers to it. But as Al-Shabaab has, has been around now for, you know, let's say, at least 15 years, it has managed to kind of embed itself within society. It provides education, it provides forms of justice, it has its own kind of irrigation and other development projects. So in some ways, Al-Shabaab in the areas that it controls and also areas it doesn't control, but it maintains influence, including the capital Mogadishu, it in some ways is acting as the most effective in some ways uh, governing body in Somalia to this day. Since 2012, there's been the kind of great fanfare around these internationally recognized governments that are formed in Mogadishu. They're brought about by a process that often involves a lot of money changing hands and a small group of people who end up choosing the members of parliament and uh, the other authority figures. And that slice of Somali power is the one that the United Nations and the US and others like to kind of present as the real authority. And they've sort of, in some ways, they've put all their attention on the formations of these Somali uh, federal governments that actually really have very little power or authority. But in terms of power, Somalia now has become a place of regional states where each uh, state has its own regional president and its own regional authorities. The problem is they have big problems with the centre. They gang up against the centre. The centre tries to put its allies, its puppets in as the regional authorities. Each kind of layer of authority that is introduced into the picture of Somalia, it just creates more tension and more conflicts and also the involvement of places like Kenya and Ethiopia in kind of giving a disproportionate amount of support to some of the state presidents has, in, in lots of ways, you could argue it's actually made Somalia more unstable rather than solving the instability. It just doesn't seem to have worked very well. Obviously, the external players are a little bit weary now of this long struggle that they've had against Al-Shabaab. But for them to be able to leave the country, they would need to be able to hand over to successful and lasting Somali security forces and other institutions. But how have the attempts to build those kind of institutions been going? Yeah, that, that's been tricky. There have been some um, advances uh, in terms of, for example, more transparent ways of paying the military different sections of the military have been trained by different countries, by the Americans, by the Turks, some by the Emiratis, so on and so on. But at the same time, that also creates problems because you've got these really kind of elite groups trained by different people, not always exactly on the same side. It's kind of become even more splintered than it was before. And also then you have the kind of mass of the Somali foot soldiers who are still not paid that regularly, they often don't have in, enough equipment, they're poorly trained. And when there are times of political tension, different sections of the security forces kind of split apart and actually started engaging in low-level violence against each other 
so they are not a unified force and it's very difficult it's very challenging but you know unless you've got a kind of effective somali army it might look like you've you've taken over a town but then the minute your troops leave al-shabaab comes back in so there's no sense of permanent progress the security forces that there's still a very long way to go uh, before they they can be viewed as anything that is really going to be effective. Thank you, Mary. So, Dr. Afia, let's bring you back into this. This is also a conflict where the violence continues to be quite intense, certainly in terms of al-Shabaab attacking people seen as complicit with internationals or with the government and ordinary Somalis trapped in the middle of this violence on both sides bearing the brunt. What's been the impact of this conflict on Somali people and how do Somalis now view this war? Well, I think the biggest impact is that Somalia has experienced a long absence of authority. So I'm talking about central legitimate authority uh, that uh, can run the country and deal with the basic issues of poverty, of education, of service delivery. So this is the biggest problem that Somalia faces at the moment. Even if al-Shabaab disappears tomorrow, the problems, the state issues, or the state building issues are much more than that. As you might know that uh, the whole essence of the Somali state is, dis- is disputed and contested. This is a very serious issue. And without that, basic authority building, you cannot do anything. What does that mean? It means continuous suffering humanitarian-wise. We're talking about millions of Somalis who are dependent on aid and relief. Uh, We're talking about a country that does not have any infrastructure in terms of the roads and big economic generators. I suppose now comes the time for the $1 million question. What do you both think are some of the options for getting out of this seemingly endless state of war in Somalia? What are some of the solutions? I notice more and more amongst people in Somalia or people who are interested and care about Somalia that the the idea of some kind of negotiated settlement with al-Shabaab, and like Afiyadi said, there are obviously lots of other groups as well. They're not the only they're not the only contender or the only sort of opposing force to the, the the federal government and it's also like when i because i speak to al-shabaab from time to time and that they're just like we'll never never negotiate with uh, the government of the apostate government as they like to call it in somalia but there are always channels of communication that exist anyway between al-shabaab and other sectors of somali society and i think eventually because al-shabaab has been around for so long because it has so much control, so many resources. It it has educated a whole generation of people uh, in its uh, schools with its curriculum. So in my view, I think they'll never be defeated. That's one thing that needs to be worked on, however difficult and painstaking it will be, is to come to some kind of settlement with al-Shabaab. Another sort of example, there are parts of the Somali territories, the most obvious one is Somaliland, Puntland to a degree, and some other regions where a 
functioning or semi-functioning political system, economy, security system has been developed and often without very much international interference and they seem to be more successful. So it might be an idea, I mean now Somalia, Somalia, at least South Central Somalia has been kind of working so closely with, with the internationals, it might be very difficult for it to kind of break away and develop a more sub Somali way of taking control of their political future. But I do think a lighter touch in terms of politics, at least from, from the internationals, would probably be quite beneficial to everybody. Another thing is that you go and meet the president or whoever in Villa Somalia and like just outside that heavily protected area, just tens and hundreds of thousands of people living in the most unspeakably basic conditions in these camps for the displaced people. And I say, how can you be sitting here squabbling amongst yourselves when you just look outside where you're living and the majority of the population is has nothing? Like, shouldn't that be your priority instead of internal feuds? But one thing that um, always impresses me so much about Somalis is their incredible dynamism, their entrepreneurial spirit, their creativity, the risk-taking. So I, I always feel that if some kind of security or peace could come to Somalia, I think it could build itself up into a very dynamic, successful, economic kind of example to lots of other places in, in Africa in particular. Dr. Afiari, can we bring you in on this point about the potential for political reconciliation as a way out of the war with Al-Shabaab? I believe there can be a way. At the moment, a number of things have to be done on both sides. More pragmatic uh, leadership on the Al-Shabaab side and also more legitimate uh, authority on the, so on the government side are the prerequisite if, if any kind of a negotiation has to happen, but I have always been calling for negotiated settlement between Al-Shabaab and Somali governments or Somali authorities since 2012. What Al-Shabaab is asking for in terms of demands, uh, Sharia, exit of the AMISOM, I think these are negotiable and the Somali government has already accepted Sharia anyway. So that I think is uh, practically possible. What I disagree with is a simplistic comparison between Afghanistan and Somalia and Al-Shabaab and Taliban. One thing we need to keep in mind is that international community has never invested Somalia the way it invested Afghanistan. There could be some sort of uh, negotiations that can take place uh, between Al-Shabaab and not necessarily right now, but perhaps in the future. And, and also, the state building project can be rejuvenated. We already have Somaliland, which is doing a good job in terms of democracy, in terms of security. We have Puntuland. We have also some sectors in, in, in the rest of Somalia. These are the places that we can compare to ourselves. Thank you both. It's a very complicated subject, but um, you've both given us so much insight. Reckoning with 9-11. So in both of these war and terror battlegrounds, counterterrorism has fed into unending wars. It has worsened the excess of a regime that was highly dis dysfunctional in Yemen. And it has fed into discontent and repression that then sparked a civil war. 
And Al-Qaeda then looked on and took advantage of the fragmentation and, and the injustice. Yes, and, and then in Somalia, again, the primacy of counterterrorism helped a major new Al-Qaeda-affiliated force to emerge, which today commands enormous influence. And again, the biggest problems faced by civilians haven't been resolved as militaries look after their own interests, and Somalia's institutions struggle to find their feet for all the help that they've received. So amid all these problems with the war on terror, there was a lot of questioning going on about how to adapt the war. This led to evolutions in the war on terror and much attempted rebranding mm -hmm. that we are going to turn to in our next episode of Reckoning with 9-11. Thank you for listening. This special war pod series, Reckoning with 9-11, is brought to you by Safer World with support from Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. It is produced by The Podcast Company. Next time on The Reckoning, we explore how the war on terror evolved as the Western appetite for direct armed intervention waned, with a focus on the rise of remote warfare and countering violent extremism programs. Listen, follow, and share wherever you get your podcasts. And for more reflections from guests and co-hosts on the consequences of 9-11 and where we go from here, check out their articles at justsecurity.org, produced in cooperation with Safer World. <laughs>